You are listening to Midgard Interactive, a podcast dedicated to the play-by-email game Midgard, produced by Midgard USA and copyright 2020 by John Caps and Talisman Consulting. I am David Oliver Kling, your host, and I first started playing Midgard, the play-by-mail game, back in 1986. Welcome to Episode 3 of Midgard Interactive the podcast about the play-by-email game Midgard. In this episode, I have the honor of talking with John Caps, the lead developer of Midgard. John has worked all over the United States as a consultant. He started with computers in the late 1970s and has over 35 years of experience with everything from mainframes to single-board computers. He has designed and implemented systems for oil and gas, loyalty systems, education, DOD, government, and financial institutions. John started Delta Games in the late 1980s. His first game was Galactic. He bought Midgard from Time Space Simulations. At the time, the code was written in Fox Pro for the Mac, which proved to be a challenge since the code would not run in our PC-centric environment. He rewrote the code into Clipper in the summer of 1987 and was able to launch the game. From there, he licensed it to several folks around the world. He decided to write a game system on a state-of-the-art cloud-based environment last year, and Night Guild was born. John linked up with Penn Eckert, who had volunteered to help him with Night Guild. And during that effort, he was asked if he could just run Midgard. This was around February 17th of 2020, and that is where we are now. John and his wife, Lori, live in Blue Hill, Nebraska. They also own and operate the Blue Hill Motel with their two sons. Let's go ahead and get started. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, my first question for you is something that I think a lot of people are probably wondering, and that is the history of Midgard. Can you talk about the original version of Midgard and the various forms that it has taken over the years? Yes. Originally, I started a game company called Delta Games, and we started working with Galactac. It was the first game I ever designed from scratch and built, and myself and Dave and Church basically wrote the game from the ground up, designed it to run on the hardware, and then as the game company grew, we wanted to expand. At that point in time, we were looking around for other games to purchase or license, and Time Space Simulations, which ran Midgard at the time, offered Midgard for sale. We went up and bought that product from them and brought it back down to Texas, where we were working on it and discovered that, yes, while it was written in Fox Pro, it was written in Fox Pro for the Mac, so I had to completely rewrite it, and I rewrote it in Clipper of Summer 87, and then we relaunched the game based on that. So one of the big changes that we made to Midgard at that time was we added the action input system so that there were defined actions for each part of what you were going to do, rather than being a, more a narrative approach. So we had the what players are now referring to as the front page actions defined, and players could go in and clearly define exactly what they wanted to do. And then we had the special actions, which were ways to role play the game. Didn't the original one have it where you had to write your stuff on the front page, like a like a duplicate or? I'm, I'm... Now, to be honest, my memory is a little little short here. When I saw it, they had three versions or three different machines running it, and Midgard was split into, I think it went A, B, C, and D, those rows on one one machine, and then the middle of Midgard was on another machine, and they had to handle passing turns between the different, so if a player went from one region into another and happened to cross machine boundaries, the code had to pick up the data and move it to the other machine in order to process it. So at the time, I wasn't so much interested in how they, they ran the physical turn as, as the mechanics of getting it into one program and solving its issues. 
Now, I remember when I played initially back, started in the 80s, the ownership switched from the U.S. Didn't it switch to the U.K.? Was, wasn't it Miter Games, I think? Well, ownership never really switched. We licensed the game company to Zan, to Miter Games in the U.K., to um, the Barons Regime in Australia, and to a Brazilian company. So we were running in four continents at the time through licensees. Those were the licensee agreements. And when Delta shut down and Talisman kind of took over, we basically shut down the play-by-mail aspect of it because we couldn't see a way to make a profit in playing by mail. The U.S. postal costs had gone up and up and up. Uh, turn fees were climbing, and the data entry part of it was killing us. So we were looking for an alternative. We explored, this was all pre-internet, remember? Right. So at the time, we actually set up a BBS. I don't know if anybody remembers BBS system, bulletin board. Oh, I do. I used to be a sysop on a couple of them. Okay, so I ran a BBS board, and we tried to take turns across that. And then the internet was kind of going all crazy about 98, I want to say. Damon thought maybe we should rewrite the entire system to work with the internet. And at the time, I decided that I was going to move on, which is why Damon uh, wound up with the play-by-mail version of the game setup. And then when did Zan get the rights to it? Well, Zan technically never had the rights to it. Zan just sort of kept running it, and I, I liked Zan. So I saw no reason to go and rain on his parade, and I liked Midgard. So I just sort of looked the other way and didn't worry about it. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I never knew that. Yeah, uh, Zan, Zan was a good guy. Yeah, really he was. Zan really liked what he did. Now, was he, was he a personal friend? No, not really. Um, he just licensed the game. Um, whenever he had issues or problems, I would send code fixes to him, uh, even after the fact. So now it's really a, no issue with that. It's now, been I almost, don't know what happened with Miter, where the game went in England after Miter had it, or whatever. Now, there was a point in time where, I believe in the contract itself, it did allow the licensees to pass the game on to another licensee. But it sort of assumed that the uh, royalty payments would keep coming, but that sort of faded away too. So we never really worried about it. Like I said, the play-by-mail version, in my mind, was a dead duck. I always intended to rewrite Midgard more as a modern game and not so much as a play-by-mail game. It would seem that play-by-mail gaming has uh, become kind of an anachronism, but there was something about when I played Zan's game, because I used to spend probably $100 a month on that game, and I remember getting... Mm -hmm priority mail envelope that was busting at the seams and it was like the best day of the month i i have always felt that the the play-by-mail stuff getting the turn was the best part of it i played uh, chess sometimes by mail so i'm familiar with that I, I used to play a game i don't know if you ever heard of it called outtime days and it was mm. pretty popular in the late 80s as a play-by-mail game and i remember getting my turn in the mail when I was in A school with the U.S. Navy. I was in, I was a photographer, so I was in photography A school. And I got you know pulled into the office because my the turn that I got in the mail had my character's name on the front page under my name. And it just like, they were like, can you explain this? And, you know, that was during the Cold War. And I think that, you know, they were like, well, what are you? Who are you? And it was really bizarre. And I had to say, it's just a game. I, I play this game through the mail. And they're like, you do what? And, and so it was, uh, I had to, I had to be accountable for having my character's name on the, um, you know, on the letter, on the turn that I got in the mail. So that's kind of funny. Oh, I was just going to say, as far as the, you know, licensing goes and all that kind of good stuff, uh, we you know, I don't want to say anything disparaging about anybody. It was interesting time and things move on. So I don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that it's back in your hands. And did you ever expect back in the eighties when you were working on Midgard that it would 
kind of become such a popular cult following with just a handful of people, but so important to them? No, I did not. To me, it was just a, a game that I, I actually love D&D or Dungeons Dragons. We play that still. I have had a campaign running in that for, I guess, pushing 40 years now. To me, the play-by-mail and the, the whole role-playing aspect of Midgard was just fun. So I'm looking forward to spinning it back up again, and I really think it will run well on the Night Guild platform. Speaking of Night Guild, to my understanding, Night Guild is a game that you had been designing in the more recent period, and that Midgard's going to sort of overlay on top of the Night Guild model. Can you talk a little bit about how that's going to work? What are some of the differences between the two and how will they syncretize together to be one game? Okay. Um, When I started uh, looking at getting back into writing a game, I was looking at writing games for uh, Unity 3D, basically doing three-dimensional games and having fun with that. And I reached back out to Davin to see what was going on with Midgard and all that. He routed me to the play-by-email board or forum that was out there. So I was kind of watching that and seeing Midgard. And so I asked Davin if he was going to do anything with Midgard. And he said, oh, no, they were working hard on it and they were doing a lot of stuff with it. So I thought, okay, um, I was going to go out and develop a game that was more late period. Uh, Midgard was more 14th century, bronze, early iron, that type of battle, large scale. And so in Night Guild, I took it to the of the late 17th century, if you will, with gunpowder, cannon, flintlock, swords, and even added this pad of magic to it. So I took the best parts of Midgard, I thought, in my mind, were the action processing system and how that worked and the role-playing piece of it. And then I designed that all in a modern platform so that I have a DM console that not only shows me the turns that are ready to process and who's waiting on what, but shows me what we've done with them, note by turn, by position, and by region etc. So that I can run this cross-country so my GMs which are dispersed can actually see everything that everybody else is doing and what they're doing so we can have a consistent story arc. So that's been fun getting that going and then like I said the big thing for Night Guild was I was trying to take all the best elements and I didn't really think about bringing Midgard into it until Penn reached out to me from the board and asked if I could lay down the Midgard data on top of it. Now the data that we're talking about is strictly old. I mean the, the copies that I have in Midgard dated from when Delta Games ran it. So I don't have Zan's database, which was destroyed when his computer went up. Uh, I, I have copies of the European code base and the Australian code base, but only in so much as I picked them off to the ruins of Zan's machine uh, after he died. They, they invited me over, and I think it was his brother helped me, and we, we took what we could off the machine, and they've been kind of laying idle in a file of mine for a while. But at any rate, so I took that and then laid that data on top of Night Guild, not without some problems. And probably the key things with those are Night Guild had no concept of factions. <laughs> so you can see the first problem right off the bat. In Night Guild, we had kingdoms and we had guilds, hence the name Night Guild. Um, and guilds were all these different groups that could run around, not so dissimilar to factions, but they were mainly tied into the economic model of the game system, whereas factions in Midgard are more tied into the political side of things. Right. So that was one big key difference. The other thing is, is that Night Guild had hundreds of items in the 
stockpiles and the items and, and that type of thing versus Midgard, I think, has 20 items in its entire thing. So in Midgard, everything is either built with stone, lumber, metals, or manufactured goods, period. Those are your four products. And everything is derived from that. Right. Whereas in Night Guild, everything in the game system that's made up of other items from the game system has a formula that's part of its definition. You go out and you mine ore, for example, you, you've got raw ore. You don't have metals. You might have tin. You may have bronze. You may have copper. Uh, well, you won't have bronze. You'll have tin and you'll have copper. And then if you want to make bronze, it's 90% copper and 10% tin melted together. And you'd have to go through a guild melter to get that. But you could take your ore to them and they would convert it for you and keep a part of it back, which winds up in the city treasury and the kingdom eventually gets uh, its fair share, you know, taxes. I think it's fun that you still have those in a medieval game system, but hey. <laughs> yeah. Now, will Midgard eventually evolve into that? Uh, Midgard will evolve into it. You can see some of that on the turn sheets today. Uh, one of the things that I've done is I've added both unit of measure and weight to everything in the stockpile. So in the past, one grain was the same as one metal, which was the same as one manufactured good. And in terms of cargo units, they were all one, right? So if you had a thousand fish versus a thousand metals, still took up a thousand cargo units mm. in Midgard. So it sounds like Midgard is going to get a little bit more complex, but in a good way. Well, Night Guild, Night Guild was a little bit, but it's going to grow into a little bit more complexity, but not quite so much. I'm not going to, you know, nickel and dime people to death on, on a bunch of weird little, little things, but I would like to see the game system expand enough to where you have more ways of getting revenue, for example. Mm. Uh, and also add attrition, which seems to have gone the way of the Great Duck. The the concept in, in right now in Midgard, if you have a thousand horses, ten years from now, you'll have the same thousand horses. Right. You know, they, they never go away. You never have any go lame, you never have any die, you never have any losses unless you go through a combat. So one of the other concepts that Night Guild had in it was attrition. There there was a definite trickle of things leaving the game system. Things like grain and granaries. I mean, you would lose some to rats, if nothing else. Right. Mm. Some would be lost to spoilage, that type of thing. Not huge quantities, but enough to keep the game system, the economics part, relatively fun to play. You'd have a reason to buy more stuff. Right. And it helps control the economic model when you've got when you've got attrition, because then you always have to be working to accommodate that. Exactly. And, you know, I don't want to see it get to where it's uh, all consuming. But at the same time, I mean, there's some things that Zan, for instance, implemented in the game that Night Guild really doesn't have a way to deal with. His methodology of doing sea routes, for example. In the old game, sea routes were specific. The players would hit a sea route, pay a fee, and then they could move across the water to get to another point. They were mainly a way to cross the water without buying ships. How do you envision them? Well, in Duzan's version, they became an economic thing. Every city that you could link, and you paid, I think, in terms of ship points and what have you, and that started a free cargo, which increased your market percentage. The problem I have with that is that it's irrelevant in terms of, well, I mean, if you have a market that's currently growing at the rate of 400 grain, let's say, per turn because of the sea route, but there's no consumption, then your market just simply keeps growing. There's no, there's no reason for people to be hauling grain. There's no reason for the market to buy the grain. There has to be demand. Uh, 
Right. It just keeps stockpiling. And you start seeing these huge numbers of things moving around the, the world. And so part of the thing is, is that in terms of sea routes, I'm probably going to convert all sea routes to a point base and let whoever had the, like, if you have 17 sea routes, you might get 17 points. And I'll let them spread those points across temples and uh, buildings and that type of thing. And that was another area that I had problems with was buildings. Um, Night Guild, everything in the tables was designed to be data-driven. So I could define a new building fairly simply by just adding it to the data table. In Midgard, things were hard-coded in different locations. So in order for me to add a new building in Midgard data table structure, I actually have to go do code modification to make it work. I'm trying to get rid of that. So one of the problems that I'm having right now with getting out city turns again are allocation. Because while cities are, you can have all of your factional offices, they're in one table. All your city buildings are actually part of your position turn, another table. And then allocations are in yet a third file. And they're not related to go look them up each time. It's just ridiculous. And you want to integrate them? Yeah, basically what I want to do is I want to make them all buildings in one table and they have features and things that they add to the city or take away from the city, i.e. pluses and minuses. And they all of their information is in one place. So when I go and put them on a turn sheet or I go to process them, it's just simply loop through the tables for this particular position and apply the differences and I'm in and on out. I don't have to go through conniption bits to make that happen. And if a player builds a new building or anything else, it's just simply adding a record to a table. Gotcha. There's no big kufferah over that. And it also will tie into some of the new faction capabilities. The gift being able to build construction. I want to put in a, a way for when the gift uses their artistic ability or artisan abilities that a building, instead of becoming a mega structure, could become a named structure. For instance, you could build the Taj Mahal as an example. It would become a named structure and it would give the city some pretty nice benefits. Nice. Now I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to ask you a question. You mentioned working with other game moderators that you work with. Can you talk mm-hmm. a, Can you talk a little bit about them and what they bring to the table and how you all are going to work as a team to process turns and special actions and whatnot? Does each one have a special area that they focus on or a different area or how is that going to work? We're, we've been kicking that around quite a bit, actually. Um, let's see, the, the GMs that are working with me are David Huffman. David is a gamer, has been around for a while. Uh, he lives in Dallas, where we'll be moving shortly. He, him and I will actually be able to connect up right now. He's been kind of in the side, side realm, if you will. David's very methodical, pretty solid, and can keep track of things, you know, little details. He's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Methodical and meticulous, but little details are important to him. And then you got my my two sons will be the other two GMs. Stanley, he's retired. Well, not retired, but ex-Navy. He's got years of playing different games and what have you. Mainly online games. He's played in uh, tournaments and that type of thing. But what he's going to do is probably more focus on the devious parts of it. Uh, he's already pushing hard for some of the some of the different factions to actually live up to what they're supposed to be doing, and he's helping me lay out some of the kingdom strengths. And then John Jr., my youngest son. Now you got to understand, young is relative here. John is 38, Dan's 40, Dave's more my age, so we're not young youngsters. <laughs> hmm. John Jr., if Dan's devious, John take devious to an extreme. <laughs> oh, wow. So, okay. <laughs> so John, will, John will add some of the uh, more interesting elements of the game. He's already pushing hard to uh, expand some of the uh, bait things that we have in there that are more magically inclined than other things. He's also a coder, so he may be helping me some with the the programming of the underlying module. Sounds like you have a good team. I think so. I think so. I think they all bring 
different things. They're not intimidated easily, so they don't let me talk over them. Darn the look. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't win all the arguments, and it's really, I have a devil of a time when they gang up on me. But uh, they're, they're interested in, in really taking the play-by-mail role-playing aspect of it and keeping that going. And so they're pushing me hard on the GM console, what things they want to see and how they want that to work. Well, I know when I look back at my own, you know, timeline, when I started playing Midgard in the late 80s and then throughout the 90s and played up until the end, sometimes, and it's been, what, 20 years since Midgard was running, I still think about it. And that's a sign of a great game. Well, we definitely don't want to ruin that experience, but I think a lot of people had the most fun role-playing the game. I don't think they're interested in just a game that's action-driven. So that's one of the things we're we're trying to preserve. What what do you mean, role-playing versus action-driven? Well, if you're if you're just an action-driven game, i.e., you're just going to submit orders in the beginning. I'm going to submit my 30 orders and wait until I get my turn back. It's all a computer process, right? When you mean action, you're yeah. talking about like front-page action as opposed to combat. Yeah. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, combat actions or special actions. One of the unique things about Midgard, and you may not be aware of this, not having played it like some of us, being on the development side, is that we still played even when there was like six months between turns. I remember back then, you know, you had to pay for minutes with phone calls. I'd have hundreds of dollars worth of phone bills because I was on the phone with people talking about what we're going to do and plotting and coming up with plans on doing stuff. So it was almost like the role playing. I mean, I mean, we weren't in character on the phone, but in some ways we, you know, we were plotting in character, even though we were talking about what our characters are going to do. And so that was a part of the game that I had not experienced anywhere else. So for example, you know, I played World of Warcraft for 10 years, but rarely ever did I get on the phone and talk to somebody about what we were going to do in game, because those kind of games are very instantaneous type games where you play, then you walk away, then you come back, and then you, that sort of thing. But Midgard, it's almost like when the game was slowing down, we still kept playing. And that was like the beauty of the game, I think, and something that really made it stick in my memory. You know, I can remember sometimes out in the front yard on the phone, pacing back and forth, talking to another player. And I can remember that time. I can remember being on the phone and talking about stuff that I was going to do in game. And those sort of memories are, they're they're there. And so 20 years later, I can still remember those times. And, you know, that was, I don't know how to explain it. It was just really, really cool. And I'm Mm -hmm. looking, and I'm looking forward to that. And I kind of see some of that on the forums. Uh, One of the things I would point out is I actually did play under time space simulation. Oh, you did? Hence why I bought the game. What? Uh, so my character, I think my position name was Skylark, and I was an Imperial. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll <laughs> forgive you. I know. Some people say they'll never forgive me, but hey. <laughs> well, my final question for you is, what are your hopes for the future of the resurrection of Midgard? I hope it keeps running. We really like the game. I think my sons are going to take it over and keep it going. They're they're the next generation, if you will, that I'd like to hand it off to. But I'm trying to build a game system that is expandable enough and that can keep running into the future without a problem. I think it will be a game that'll stick with you. There's As long as you can do anything in the game, if you put your mind to it and you get the players to go with it, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. And I'll be 50 this year. And my hope is to be able to play Midgard till I die and my, my daughter's two and a half, and when she gets old enough, hopefully I'll get her to play because we're always looking for new players to make our factions the biggest and the best and the most populous. 
I appreciate you coming on the show, and I look forward to having you back. Do you have any last words before we adjourn? I was going to mention a couple of things that are currently in the hopper. I'm currently finishing the last of the edits on the clan turns. When those go back out, the next round of testing will be then to input actions via the website, and then we'll run a process. So I'm looking forward to that. I'd like to see our first process go and turns actually turn around. Perfect. I look forward to it, too. Thank you for listening to Midgard Interactive. Please send your feedback directly to me at david.oliver.kling at gmail.com. And do me a favor, put Midgard in the subject so I know that it's about this podcast. Thanks again for listening. And remember, there are many different factions in the game. Make sure you choose wisely. Thank you.